0: Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au.
1: Let's be upfront about living with metastatic breast cancer. Not without its challenges, but indeed people can and do live well for many years. Metastatic breast cancer, which is also referred to as stage four, is when the disease has spread from the breast to another part of the body. It's not curable, but there are treatments that can help manage it and importantly provide a good quality of life. In this edition of Upfront, we're going to get medical insight into how health professionals weigh up the balance, and we welcome oncologist and BCNA board member, Professor Fran Boyle. Good morning. And to talk about some of the day-to-day challenges of living with metastatic breast cancer, and perhaps share some helpful hints, is Rochelle Gebert, a mother of two who was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in 2016 at the age of 36. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Fran, what would you say is the key to being able to live well with metastatic breast cancer?
2: I think one of the keys, uh, Kelly, is to realise that you're going to live well if the disease is under control and also if your symptoms are under good control. And both of them are as important... As one another. So it's no good saying I'm going to have a massive amount of chemotherapy and I don't care what happens in terms of side effects and I'm not worried about pain, I'm not going to do anything to do with that, Uh, I'm just going to focus on the cancer. That's not going to give you the best quality of life. The best quality of life will come and probably the best survival too from thinking about treatment effects, side effects, and your symptoms as being equally important. And the fourth part of that is your brain space or your head space. And if you can't actually get help for all of those things, then something's going to be a little bit out of kilter and you won't do as well as you might otherwise have done.
1: When you say survival, that's going to mean different things to different people, isn't it?
2: Well, it is. And I'm just thinking about Rochelle, who's obviously young and has young children, and for her, every six months that she spends with her family, uh, there's another milestone, isn't there? Completely. Sounds like your son's going to be maybe starting school in a little while. So for her, maybe the absolute priority at the beginning feels like it's staying alive as long as possible. Yeah. And there might be the temptation correct me if I'm wrong, to say my symptoms don't matter, side effects don't matter, just chuck it at me because I need to stay alive. But when you have a small child, you also need to be switched on 24-7. You need to be able to function. You need to be able to enjoy that time. And so it's just as important really to manage your symptoms. What do you think?
3: Yeah, yep, definitely. Because you... You know, I guess people talk about trying to live a normal life and managing the symptoms helps you live a normal life and do the things that you were doing before you were diagnosed. Um, so, yeah, it's it's tough to keep all of that under control um, and especially just dealing with the, the everyday things that you have to do with young children, they've got lots of energy, they're very demanding, they think the whole world resol- revolves around them. So it's that emotional you know, they're emotionally draining sometimes. And even though you love them and you want to do everything with them and sometimes you just don't want to be around them because you can time out. You can't I handle think that's a normal, it. Like that's mummy mother, mother. <laughs> Yeah. Mother so, feeling. Yeah. So what is normal for you? Uh, so yeah, I guess before we were just talking uh, before we started recording that I was working part time. Um, my kids were in childcare and at school. Uh, but when I was diagnosed, I had to, um, well, I didn't have to, I chose to stop working, um, to focus on my health, um, and, you know, get all of that under control. Um, and I guess, yeah, just feeling like I wasn't going to survive the next, you know, 10 years. Um,
1: so that's dealing with so, the shock, the initial yeah, shock. Yeah,
3: exactly. And I think that takes a long time to deal with the shock. Um, so for me, yeah, at the moment, normal is being available to do pickups and drop-offs and be involved with the school, um... You know, taking advantage of opportunities like this uh, to do some advocacy, sharing my story, uh, that makes me feel better. Uh, Prioritising exercise, I think that that helps me uh, physically and mentally. Um, And I know that, you know, studies have shown that exercise has to be part of our treatment. Um, So, yeah, I think just similar to what a normal stay-at-home parent would experience. The
1: use of the word normal, Fran, even though someone's been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, it's now considered more a chronic illness as, well, it is a terminal disease, but people can live for many, many years.
2: I was uh, looking up some... um Chronic illness memes on Facebook the other day for a talk that I was giving uh, about metastatic breast cancer. And I found a wonderful one that said, The only person who thinks it's great to have a t- chronic illness is someone who's never had one. And uh, I have suffered from chronic pain now for at least the last five years. And that's different from severe pain I had when I was younger in my 30s, but that got fixed with surgery. So it was bad for a year, but then it got better. And that difference between knowing that more or less, no matter what you do uh, with treatment or surgery or drugs, you're going to have to keep dealing with that problem means that there actually is no normal life. You have to juggle an extra ball, and it's almost as if you were juggling work and family and exercise and so forth, and you're handed this extra ball, which is something you don't want. And you've either got to juggle really fast or you've got to put something down temporarily so that you can manage that extra issue, which is your chronic health problems. And for me, that meant cutting back work, reducing flying. I have to be able to say to people, no, I've worked my 60 hours and I'm going to have a lie down now Uh, and to take my medication really religiously. And so that's a little bit similar for many women dealing with metastatic breast cancer, they probably are going to have to put something else down in their lives, at least temporarily, until they get better at juggling and their symptoms improve. And then they may be able to pick up that work ball again, but maybe part-time, not full-time. Maybe not the CEO, but maybe some position that's got more boundaries around it uh, that isn't on call 24-7, because particularly if you're a mum of young children, that's probably going to be prioritised in, in your decision-making um, ahead of perhaps really long-term career prospects. But for some women, the financial pressures are so strong that they're really hammered on both sides. And in that circumstance, they may find their exercise is something that they just can't do full-on or they need a treatment that's a bit simpler and has fewer side effects. So all of that goes into the mix of working out for that particular woman and her family what's the best way to go.
1: On the upside, it's good to know for people who do want to continue working that that is a very real possibility with metastatic breast cancer?
2: I think it is. Uh, It depends a bit on the type of work. So if it's very physically um, demanding work, that may be challenging. If it involves a lot of flying Jetstar, that might be (laughs) quite challenging (laughs) uh, because there's nothing like an airline seat to make your back hurt. Mm. Uh, And if it's something where you have no control over your work environment, for instance, you're working at a checkout, you know, everything works on 20-minute... Um, scheduling, and you only get one toilet break every two hours, if your treatment's causing diarrhoea that's unpredictable, that may be really quite hard for you. So again, your oncologist needs to know what's your work like, what's its flexibility, and how can we plan to avoid side effects that might be a problem for you by choosing a treatment in a different way, or protecting you from those
1: side effects. Speaking of side effects, pain, pain, is a very big issue to face with many diseases, including metastatic breast cancer.
3: Yeah, for me, I guess because the um, metastases are in my bones, that has been quite difficult for me to get used to um, managing the pain and um, taking my pain medication, uh, knowing what works for me and taking it when I need it uh, because it's there's no point once you've got the pain it's it's all about managing the pain and keeping it at bay um which can help you do your normal i keep saying normal but (laughs) just doing the things that you want to do um but
1: you still got to be able to function too
3: yeah exactly yeah um so it's just yeah it's trying to find that balance um but I guess for, for other people it might be different things. It might not be pain, it might be lymphedema, it might be, you know, I'm not sure what other side effects other people would have with if they've got liver mets or lung mets and so it's all, you know, different. Trying to work out which medications or your other medications that go along with your cancer medications um, to help you, um, yeah, keep going on as well as you can.
2: A lot of people actually say to me that they're very frightened about taking opioids, um, morphine related drugs or oxycodone or something like that for their pain. And they commonly raise this fear of addiction. And what we find in people with cancer pain is that addiction is very, very rarely a problem. If the pain is there, it soaks up the drug. And so it's not like you're going to get high from it. I wish I was. Um, Enough. Nice. <laughs> uh, and as the pain gets smaller, as treatment works or radiotherapy kicks in, then you just gradually reduce the dose of the opioids. And if your pain goes away completely, you just stop them. So people don't get psychologically dependent on opioids in the cancer context. Hardly at all. Very rarely a problem. Uh, opioids are actually the only drugs that we know of that have no top dose. So. Sometimes people worry, if I have it now, when my pain's not too bad, will there still be drugs for me when I'm dying? And the answer is, you betcha, and because they're the only drugs you can just slide up as much as you need or back down again. So that really is a common fear, but it's unfounded. And making sure that you get the right advice about your pain's important. Cancer Council's got some really excellent books and information about that, and very much be the case that when you need specialised advice about pain management that's where palliative care teams can be helpful but also um, chronic pain services often look after people with cancer as well.
1: What about fatigue? That must be a big issue.
2: Fatigue is a real problem, and I don't really think we've cracked that yet. Um, controlling the cancer does improve fatigue by and large, but many of our drugs also have fatigue as a side effect. Sometimes that's caused by anemia, and of course you can transfuse people in that circumstance, which helps. And sometimes it's caused by sort of off-suit things like your thyroid being out of whack or something like that. So it's important to check that there's not some other condition causing it. Uh, One of the things that Rochelle alluded to was exercise and it's kind of a bit counterintuitive, but exercise is actually a really important way to combat fatigue. Have you found
3: that? Yeah, completely. I think um, because I guess too you have a little bit of fear. When you're in a lot of pain like I was when I was first diagnosed and, and you're fearful of what you can and can't do. Um, so then you pull back from everything and I guess exercise is another one of those things. Um, but I was just really grateful that I took the opportunity from the BCNA uh, to be part of a 12-week program um, with an exercise physiologist. Uh, so then I, had, I used my five sessions that I was eligible for Um, with a chronic disease management plan. My health insurance um, made up the difference in cost and I was able to, you know, work out have personalised because it was just one-on-one work out what I could and couldn't do um, to start exercising again. And then I think I just became more confident with that. And I've just really surprised myself with what I can do and doing strength classes, knowing that I need that for my um, bone health. Um, Also, uh, you know, doing Pilates because I know that that would help, you know, strengthen my core and then not, you know, let my back feel, you know, as in in as much pain because I'm feeling stronger in that area. Um and then and setting some goals. So, you know, last year a group of friends and I took part in the bloody long walk and we walked 35 k's. Um, and in May, we uh, participated in Coast Trek and we're going to walk 60 k's. And so, you know, Amazing. I, I never thought, Amazing. And it must I be hope I couldn't get there. <laughs> but I'm trying.
0: BCNA's Helpline provides a free, confidential phone and email service for people diagnosed with breast cancer. BCNA's experienced team will help with your questions and concerns and provide relevant resources and services. Call 1800 500 258 or email contact at bcna.org.au. When people hear
1: that you have metastatic breast cancer, you look really well. And I think that can be quite deceiving, can't it? Do you find that people forget that you actually have a
3: terminal illness? Yes. I think sometimes it can be the relation. want to talk about cancer and people. I think there's two types of people, the people that want to talk about cancer and the people who don't want to talk about cancer. So I guess it's hard when you encounter the people that can be friends or family that don't want to talk about cancer, so they don't really acknowledge it. And then that can be difficult because you want them to ask you how you are and what's going on. Then you've got other people who are just such a great support. They will just talk about it. They ask questions. You know, nothing is off limits. And, you know, that can be quite comforting. Um, but I think, One of the hardest things is when people say you look well, because you're thinking, well, I do look well. I look normal. I look at myself in the mirror and I look normal. But on the inside, I'm not normal. You know, that day I might be feeling nauseous and It is just completely annoying me but when people come out and just make a statement you feel as though it's their way of saying i've acknowledged what's going on but perhaps it could be better if they asked an open-ended question open-ended question of how are you feeling how are you managing your side effects you know things like that because yeah you you feel as though you're, they're willing to listen if they ask a question like that rather than saying, you look well, it's closed, let's shut this conversation down. It's designed to shut down. it down, yeah. shut it down. Yeah. Is that yeah. common,
2: Fred? Well, yes. I think it's common. I find that too. People go, oh, you're upright, yeah, excellent, you know, <laughs> You can't see what it's taking to keep me upright. You can't see the bolts and batteries and, you know, it's full of drugs. Mm-hmm. And that's the same for Rochelle. Both of us actually look pretty well. Uh, and you wouldn't know for either of us that there was a lot of activity going on underneath the surface. So I think um, finding those people who are the ones who really get it sometimes comes from a support group and sometimes comes from an online community. So I belong to an online community of people with chronic pain that's not cancer-related. Great to see on my Facebook somebody saying, yeah, I managed to conquer this goal uh, this week. Rochelle, I think, maybe has been involved with one of the support groups here, but also the BCNA online community can give you those people who get it and hopefully in your family or friends there's someone who gets it and who realizes when you're feeling vulnerable and is prepared to go that extra mile make the kids dinner you know mow your lawn put a pot of spaghetti bolognese on for you whatever it is because that compassion fatigue that we sometimes see set in for people who are looking after those with chronic health conditions everyone gets tired and so making sure you've got that little support around you, you know, team, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, so there's not just one person wearing out a partner or um, a friend.
1: Yes. Have you found that helpful, Rochelle? How do you manage day to day? Because even though we've just said you look well, mm. it must weigh heavily on you emotionally.
3: Uh, completely. I think that's probably the most difficult um, side of living with metastatic breast cancer. Just the psychological. Um, you think about it all the time. You are. You have to be patient because you. You know you've got to wait to see if treatment works. You know you can't have scans too often, so you just have to just sit and wait and make sure that everything is going okay. Um, you know, yeah, as we said, finding the right people, doing different things, um, getting what you need from different different people, because sometimes you might be in a support group, but you don't necessarily have to like it, everyone in there, or you might not have the same life experiences. I think some of the face-to-face groups that I've had, or even the online ones as well, a lot of the women can be older than me, and there's, you know, I've learned a lot from them as well, but they're not necessarily dealing with um, young children. Um,
1: What about your partner? That must weigh heavily on him. How do you, as a couple, address the fact that you do have young children?
3: Yeah, um, I think that we try and, which is hard, and I think that's hard for anyone with young kids, is making time for each other, um, just the two of us. Um, but then we do set set plan, plans to do things. Um, we After I was diagnosed, we booked a trip to New York, to, just the two of us, and we were lucky enough for our families, uh, my in-laws and my mum, to step in and look after the kids for two weeks. Um, and that was just a great experience for us because we felt like we could do everything that we wanted to do um, without worrying about catering to the kids and and what they wanted to do. Um, so that just gave us confidence that we know that we can do that again. Um, sometimes I might I, I might not talk to my husband about how I'm feeling because I might receive more support from a girlfriend or um, the online support groups, um, because my husband and I might just talk about everyday stuff. But and I guess he doesn't he doesn't talk much either, but I did mm-hmm. ask him. I said, I said, do you worry about me? You know, because, he, yeah, he doesn't give away much. So I asked him if he worried about me and he said every day. He thinks about it every day, even though he might not communicate it with me.
1: So have you had the tough discussion further down or is that something that you say for further down the
3: track? Uh, no, I think it's something that we have to confront all the time. Um, it's been a little while, but we did we do see my psychologist together. We go see her together. Um, and he's always available to come to my appointments with me so he knows what's going on. And have you
1: found that um, really helpful having the psychological support?
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it's a combination of things. Like I said, I, I haven't made an appointment for a while, but that's just one part of it. Like I said, it's still the online support groups, um, the exercise, having girlfriends who are willing to listen. Um, It's antidepressants, you know, all all of that.
1: And from a medical point of view, people can often be scared again of antidepressants. Um, But it's a case of finding what works for you to give as long quality of life as you can get for however long.
2: Well, that's absolutely critical actually because Your mood will influence so many things that can impact on survival. So if your mood is really low, then having the motivation to eat well, to exercise, to reach out for help, having the motivation to try new treatment options when they come up, uh, that falls away and your self-esteem goes really through the floor and that has a massive impact on quality of life. So untreated depression is something that we are very concerned about in this context. Antidepressants can help with pain management and there are particular antidepressants that do that more so than others. They can help with sleep and they can help with activity and appetite and they can also help people uh, to achieve some of those goals, which I think, um, as you've heard, is very important. Having said that, there are some antidepressants that don't go well with particular anti-cancer drugs and there are some antidepressants that have side effects that may actually make Other side effects worse, for instance, constipation, dry mouth, that sort of thing. So if your oncologist is not very confident choosing the right antidepressant for you, then ask to see a psychiatrist because there are psychiatrists who are experienced uh, in choosing drugs well for people who have other medical conditions. And getting the right specialist advice is very important. Backup is your psychologist. So paying someone to listen to you for an hour, I could really recommend because it's pretty rare that your spouse will do that Mm. under any circumstances and even your girlfriends will probably fail at about half an hour. Uh, So paying someone that money and, of course, you can get that covered with a mental health plan uh, from your GP. You can get some Medicare rebates for that. And a psychologist who knows about cancer, I think, can be someone who provides that um, listening ear but also techniques to manage fear, which are very important. Panic anxiety, because all of those things magnify pain. And if you can learn to meditate, if you can learn to, when you're starting to hit the panic button, just drop the anchor and, you know, recenter yourself, then you'll stop that upwards pain spiral that
1: gets people into trouble. So what I'm hearing here, the importance of communicating with all your health professionals what medications you're on, what symptoms you're having, even though you think that they may not be relevant. So if you're thinking that you're just really tired, but you're just saying that that can escalate pain, that so many other things can have an adverse reaction, but all or most can be managed if you're open so that you can make a collective decision. And I assume that's with your desire to try different treatments, including natural remedies so that everyone is on the same page and therefore can make the right decision for you as opposed to just having some pieces of the jigsaw and therefore not getting the full picture.
2: I think that's really true and that managing metastatic breast cancer is a team game. That's the team at home, Mm -hmm. the team at the hospital, your GP. It can include any of the acupuncturists that you're seeing, your Pilates instructor, your exercise physiologist, um, a physiotherapist, uh, your palliative care team, if that's important. So keeping all of that in the air is challenging and for many patients they find that one role a spouse can play is uh, helping to uh, manage bills or helping to manage appointments or helping to manage particular activities uh, around uh, what you need to coordinate your care, making sure your scripts don't run out of date, that sort of thing. Um, So that's one of the reasons why it might be important to cut back on work get some extra household help or some extra childcare so that you can make sure uh, that managing those aspects of your illness is as trouble-free as it can be and not a source of extra stress.
1: And for you, Rochelle, what has been your greatest learning from your experience
3: so far that you perhaps
1: want to share with someone else going through metastatic breast cancer?
3: Um... Ah, it's hard to say because I sometimes I don't know if I'm doing it well, like in terms of the psychological part of it, because it it is really difficult, um, and I think maybe in time um, it will get better. But, yeah, some days I'm completely fine and there are other days it just all gets to me, especially when um, you've got scans coming up um, or, you know, there's different markers that are are not quite right but you're just waiting to see what happens. You're just not sure if this treatment is working. And as we were just saying about um, the... You know, working with your medical team and everyone working as a team and, and being open about what you're feeling. I think sometimes you're really heightened to everything that's going on in your body, and it might not necessarily be the cancer, it could just be a normal infection, but it's trying to manage that side of it as well and not assuming that everything is cancer but still keeping on top of everything.
2: It's that sudden medical oncology training that you need to um, just quickly catch up on, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, you know... People with metastatic breast cancer are more prone to infection. They're more prone to clotting. And sometimes, in fact, the things they die from are uncontrolled infection or uncontrolled clotting rather than the cancer itself. So really important. SOS, you've got a fever, we need to know about it. You're suddenly short of breath after getting off a plane, not (laughs) Jetstar. We need to know about it. So managing the other aspects of your health uh, is very much a challenge. So knowing where to where to press the panic button if you need to get help after hours because you're suddenly unwell is just as important as calming yourself on other days. Many people say they've had to learn to live in the moment and not to plan too far ahead. And that's probably a lesson for all of us uh, that is always a challenge uh, especially if you're the kind of person who is a planner and not sweating some of the small stuff is probably another thing that that women often say to me things they used to worry a lot about just don't matter anymore they focused a lot more on what's actually important to them
1: and women are typically resilient I think the other message is to don't feel like you have to do it alone
3: oh definitely not definitely not what you, you can't do it alone because then that would probably drive you into deeper depression that, you know, yeah, trying to think that you can do it on your own. You just can't. Yeah, You need to draw on all your supports. Um, and there's always BCNA's helpline. Yep. to And online network.
1: Thank you both for joining us on Upfront, a proud production of Breast Cancer Network Australia with thanks to Cancer Australia. If you want to know more about how to live with metastatic breast cancer, there are links to some great resources on our website, bcna.org.au. This podcast series is intended to provide information, suggestions, and discussion. Please contact your health professional with any concerns you might have. The opinions of our guests are welcome, but not necessarily shared by BCNA. And we'd love to know your thoughts too, so leave us a message on our feedback page. I'm Kelly Curtin. Thanks for being upfront with us.